0: Hello and welcome to Choosing an Agency. My name is Alex, and I'm here to talk about how to select the right agency to grow your business, giving you the inside line on things to look out for the next time you need external support. I'll be interviewing industry figures from all manner of backgrounds to get hints and tips on the things to consider when choosing an agency. Today, I'm joined by Josh Acapo from Archetype. Hi, Josh. Hello Alex, how are you? Yeah, not bad thank you, not bad. So for people that are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: So first of all thank you for having me and um, secondly yes I'm Josh, so I'm a co-founder of a creative agency called Archetype and Archetype moves at the pace of culture in merch, design, and digital. More design and digital since the pandemic has started. And our thing is we create impactful moments, impactful and purposeful moments in culture for artists, brands, movements, and more. Um, I also am a researcher and strategist for Hype Collective, communications and marketing director for Joined Up Thinking, and a student still. That's an interesting part.
0: So other than that, you're not to too much. And you've worked with some fantastic like, like organisations, people, brands.
1: Yeah. Um, I always forget to mention that part in my intro because I'm always like, okay, just squeezing the stuff you do and then the brands can come in later. But yeah, work worked with some great brands. Um, Lovebox Festival, Stormzy, NHS Blood and Transplant, uh, I think also Mental Health Foundation, Converse. Yeah.
0: Excellent. So Josh, to get a better feel for who you are, if you could invite four people, past or present, to a meal, who would they be?
1: <sighs> this is going to be interesting because they're almost all going to be musicians. So... The first one would definitely be Whitney Houston because I need to meet her. It's so sad. Her passing was so sad and her voice is just so good. So she needs to be in, in a slot on this, in this dinner. I would probably then have to say Brandy. Brandy's alive though. Still amazing vocalist. One of my favorite vocalists ever. Now, this is where it gets tricky to throw in someone who's not a musician who I would love to have met or spoken to. Um, Actually, one of them would actually be one of, um, would be my grandmother, who I actually haven't met on my dad's side. Um, Um, So she passed when I was two, but from everything that my um, dad has told me about her, she sounds like somebody I would have absolutely loved to have met. So she is also on there.
0: Absolutely, and and that kind of thing is quite magical. And a few people have said about family members and that kind of thing, that'd be awesome. I never met mm -hmm. my grandfather, and so it would likewise. It'd be awesome to meet him because I think genetically I'm probably quite close to him in terms of um, looks and personality as
1: well. Yeah. And then we got one more slot. I'm going to say Jimi Hendrix. I actually do want to meet him. He's just such an interesting, interesting guy with a mind that's mad
0: so Miles dad told a story once about being in the lift in a hotel in Amsterdam with Jimi Hendrix before he was famous
1: before he was famous and
0: so my my dad passed away like 15 years ago so I don't know know, I can't dig into it or anything now but yeah wow how do you think your grandmother will get on with the other three
1: Uh, with Whitney probably very well Um, (laughs) (laughs) with Brandy I mean see the thing with Brandy is Brandy Brandy and Whitney would get on along well because they they knew each other when she was alive and then I mean, who can't get along with Jimi Hendrix? That's my thing. I I, I, I don't know that. So, sure, I'd, I'd, hope, I'd hope that everybody would be able to get along. Excellent. <laughs> so, in terms of the NC world, what's your experience of that? I've been in marketing and advertising for about six years, going on seven years now. And since I was about 16, I've been doing social media marketing for various different things. Started off a lot smaller, a lot more unknown sort of people, um, brands and things. And then it sort of grew into where I'm now. But when I started for, I'd say the first three years, I had absolutely no idea what an agency was. My only experience of an agency was like a traditional working agency, i.e. you go there, fill out a form, and then they tempt you at various places. That's all yeah. I knew agency to be. Um, I had absolutely no idea there was a whole world in which people were making hundreds of thousands to literal millions of pounds, running creative campaigns, doing strategy, planning, that whole bit of having so many niches. I only found that out when I met um, one of my um, industry, like, well, friends really before, before industry, but I met her at a networking event. Shani Smears. Um, and she runs the agency, creative agency, The Elephant Room. And I met her when she was just starting The Elephant Room. And I was like, oh, so what is this then? How does this work then? I had no idea what this thing was. I didn't know it, its existence. I was still doing a computer science degree at the time. And then um, she took me on a sort of work shadowing day around the time they were just starting out. So they hadn't even got an office yet they um, were just ideating like sort of things that they could do to drive new business and stuff. Um, And we were talking about the whole creative industries in that sector. And I was like, Whoa, this is mad. How does one do this? Mm -hmm. And yeah. So from there um, got connected to a few more people in the industry, a few more, I guess, people who had been in agencies or run agencies, gone to networking events, um, met people from like a bunch of different agencies, big agencies, small agencies. Then I joined hype collective. Um, and that one came about through Shani actually. I was chasing her to reply to an email. Simon, um, the um, founder of Hype Collective, so happened to find my Twitter thread where I was like um, semi-passive-aggressively bugging Shani to reply to me. <laughs> um, and then Simon was like, what? Oh, you're up with students and young people. Oh, we need something, something, something. So then um, we had a meeting, then I had another meeting. Then all of a sudden, I'm working at Hype, and I was like, oh my gosh, wow, I get to be in an agency, and I'm only in like second year of uni, and I get to do all this cool stuff. Oh my gosh. And that was when agency world really started
0: um, for me. And there is a time when you join an agency because agencies are at different paces, different trajectories, mm. and to join a exciting agency that's on a rapid growth trajectory and you're seeing yeah. everything that's going on how people respond into different situations opportunities that are thrown up it can be quite a um, intoxicating atmosphere to work in
1: it can i have definitely seen that and i've seen that a, a few other creative companies i will not name names because i'll give them a chance to grow and to be better but um at hype collective it was actually the opposite because I think Simon and uh, the creative director Paul. Because when I joined, it was actually only the two of them and then me, and then like the team um, like built up slowly um, after that. Um, we had like um, we had like student ambassadors and things like that. But in terms of head office, it was I think it was just us three, yeah, for a, for a decent period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so when I remember one thing that they kept drumming in was that okay. How can we do all this cool stuff exciting stuff and um, grow scale all of that stuff but by doing as little work as possible little work as possible not meaning being lazy but meaning prioritizing rest and prioritizing self-care and not working yourself to the bone like other agencies do. And that was where I learned, wow. So I don't have to be working 25, eight to be a CEO or to be a founder of a company or to have a successful business because I saw them, they were pulling in clients like it was nobody's business. Their success rate was mad. And it still is, to be honest, Um, success rate was mad. Um, Case studies are great, all that kind of thing. And I'm just sitting here thinking, Wow, so I really don't have to just be doing the most to be a company founder. Because Simon would go off at like 5.30pm and he'd go to the gym and then he'd go home and he'd chill. And I was like, huh, so this is the life then. It wasn't necessarily something he had to make a conscious decision to do. And like he'd blocked off all this time and before he was doing all this running around. No, he's lived a pretty chill life. I mean, definitely worked hard when he's working. But outside of that, he's calm. Same thing with Paul. Um, And I I think that taught me that, okay, agency world does not have to be like the biggest backbreaker at all. So then when I ended up starting my own agency archetype while still working at Hype Collective, these guys were like, oh yeah, Josh, don't worry, you'll be fine. Um, And then I realized that, oh, so I can actually work at this agency kind of part-time, my um, agency archetype. I can kind of do like things here and there and I can keep, so long as my account management is really, really, really good, I can keep like... I can take the afternoon off and walk in the park when it's sunny, or I can just like um, go for a beer at 4pm instead of having to like stay on my laptop till eight, and things like that. So the agency life is sort of turned around and not being a toxic hellhole that a lot of times it can be for others.
0: Absolutely. That makes sense. So, because I think there is a tendency sometimes in the agency world to there's like a almost hustle porn where you have to be working yeah. from four o'clock in the morning till midnight and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And I think, that can be a very unhealthy narrative to listen to especially when you're starting out I think there are times when you might have to put in a shift to get a project over the line and get done but for that to be the default I think there's probably something fundamentally wrong in the business for that to be the case Mm,
1: exactly that and it's I was listening to a podcast the other day actually um and I think um it said something interesting it was something along the lines of um um it was just a business i talking about like their journey and um she said oh now all of a sudden I'm I've got like more clients I'm making more money I'm doing all this stuff but I but I work like less hours than I used to or I do oh I leave like on time or I'm not constantly in the shop 25 8 or this this kind of thing and then and then she literally asked herself what was I doing before When I would not, when I would sleep at this shop, when I wouldn't leave, when I would constantly be doing, what was I doing to keep myself busy? And it came down to the fact that she was just working really, really, really hard but not necessarily prioritizing the things that would keep her going. Because oftentimes, as you've said, like hustle porn is a real thing. It absolutely is a real thing. And everybody glorifies it. It's, it's, it's really scary. Almost like, oh, I'm, you, you see the guys on LinkedIn. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm waking up at like, uh, what, 3 a.m. Or they're sending emails at like 2.15 a.m. And they're like, I never sleep because I don't need to sleep. I'll sleep when I'm dead. that whole bit. And then um, when the pandemic hit, everyone was like, oh, need to re-strategize ham new business, yeah, consolidate um, current business, yeah, yeah, grow team, yeah, 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 growth, growth, yeah, upwards charts that always look like that. <laughs> and it was just really toxic. But at the same time, you're like, if you do all of that and then you burn out, you're not going to be able to do anything else after that.
0: Absolutely. I think there are times where I think it's like, okay, to put in a shift and go above and beyond. But then these mm. the times where you actually back right off and actually do all the normal day-to-day stuff in terms of prioritising your life rather than just sort of work, work and being in the agency. Absolutely. And coming into the agency world, Josh, what are some of the barriers that you've had in terms of, like, entry? Oof,
1: this is a question. Um, well, I'd say many. Um, but some of them I haven't even noticed, and some of them haven't looked like barriers also. I think one really important one, which I was talking about before, Mm -hmm. Because actually, it doesn't sound like a barrier to entry at all. If I say this now, it's going to sound like, oh, well, isn't that convenient? But it's the fact that I've not actually been able to get opportunities with an agency based on merit alone. It's actually really annoying. Um, And... Since we're all told that we live in a meritocracy, and since we're all told that hard work gets you results, and since we're all told that going going to either well either going to uni that's what people sell you mainly, but or doing an apprenticeship or doing an internship or getting stuck in and doing all of this great work will get you opportunities. And for me, that is not what got me opportunities at all. That is not what it. Is. It doesn't matter who I worked with. At the by the time I finished sixth form, I had literally done a really groundbreaking project that won an award, by the way. Um, for Lovebox Festival and Stormzy. We designed their entire merch campaign. We sold the merch. It was like a mad successful event. It was a youth event. ITV covered it. It was great. But that didn't get me a job. What got me a job was networking mm-hmm. and who I knew. And I'm not, and this isn't me saying that, oh, I came from this background where, oh, yes, I knew everybody and was, uh, my dad put me in this. But no, it wasn't that. It was, I just made a lot of efforts. Knowing a lot of people, networking, my um, can I can I swear on this? Please swear. <laughs> Networking my fucking ass off just <laughs> to get through <laughs> this entire thing, and it was difficult. I was like, "What on earth this?" this. <sighs> um, like, why? I was applying for jobs, applying for jobs. My CV was longer than anything else. Everyone in in agency world was telling me, "Wow, Josh, you're really you're really doing great things. Wow, you're really going far." And I get results back and i'd never get feedback or i'd just be like oh sorry we've gone for someone else with xyz experience here and i'm like what more experience do you need at this point i've shown you i can deliver campaigns i'm showing you i can account manage i've shown you i can strategize i've shown you i can do creative there was a time i was literally graphic designing and web designing and <laughs> like illustrating all at the same time it was a mad thing as well as strategizing and and doing research and it was it was a whole thing i was doing all of this stuff yeah. Yeah, doing putting all this output but I couldn't get no job via merit and then I had to ask myself why why couldn't I and it is unfortunately because of race and because of class-ish as well um, I, I say class-ish because I'm not really working class but I'm also not really middle class I don't quite know where I fit in that scale. somewhere somewhere in between somewhere but really it yeah race and and class and just like what people's perceptions of you especially and age as well like because i've been a student this whole time um people often act as though when you're a student that's the only thing you can do is if universities don't give us ample time to do everything else Mm -hmm. um i mean i could be like a high functioning alcoholic if i wanted to be as a student as most are i would have the time for that but i chose (laughs) to do creative industry stuff it's fine um but apparently employers and things think that part-time work doesn't get done from young people or something i don't know i don't know what that's about but definitely race definitely the industry has a um a diversity problem an inclusion problem an equity problem and class we we are so middle class as uh industry marketing industry um even like almost every founder has like been to i go on people's linkedin and when when people are foolish enough to preach about working hard to get where they are, and then they leave their private school on their LinkedIn page. I always find that hilarious because I always see, I always check, and I'm like, ah, so you had money then. That's nice. (laughs) But I didn't, so what now? Like, (laughs) what are you supposed to do? I think you're
0: probably right. I think I always struggle to talk on these kind of issues because the last thing anyone needs to hear on diversity is the opinion of a middle-aged, middle-class white person. That's what I am. So there's not much else I can do about it. But I think it's, um, you know, we've been going through this process as an agency where we've been going through the B Corp process. And part of that is we've then started thinking about diversity. We're based out in a little quaint Essex village where there's like little old ladies with those like buggies and (laughs) it's not a diverse area. And so Mm -hmm. in terms of our team, our team is not diverse at all. And so I've had to, like, do some existential soul-searching, thinking, well, I I don't believe I'm racist, Um, but then am I unconsciously biased? Have Mm. I just been so brought up in a sort of very white, middle-class sort of network that I don't actually realise how biased I am? And so I've had to go through that sort of process and think, well, why is it that... The team that I've got why are they are they all just following in my footprint have I just subconsciously been thinking about recruiting people that are like me because I feel more comfortable with people that come from a similar background with me is it Mm. there's not a it's totally not a front of mind thing where I've sort of thought I'm only going to um, employ white people I have employed people from different um ethnic backgrounds to myself um in the past we're currently, that's where the team is. So, what I've had to then do is look at our processes and our systems. I didn't anticipate talking about all this today, so I feel a little bit on the spot. But um, right. where we are now on a, the careers page, we're going to get live on the website, take out people's yeah. identifying features. So, no name, no location, uh, none of that kind of stuff. So, we interview right. based on, we invite people to an interview based on what their CV shows. Yeah. But then behind that sits this whole thing about if you're from a middle class family,
1: Mm.
0: You're probably, your parents are probably going to be able to pay for you to do maths class mm. um, if when you're passing A-level. if you're from a working-class family, your family are probably just going to be struggling to put food on the table.
1: Mm. And so then if you've
0: got those two CVs as an employer and you're looking for one from a middle-class background, one from a working-class background, based on that, if you've got the same salary you're going to deploy as a business owner, you're probably going to do the it's, – it's really tricky. It's a tough call yeah. to make. And so I think from that, we're then doing this thing where we're looking to, for a certain tier of role, advertise in a different geographical area, because something that lockdown has taught us guys is that basically the team are working really, really well without coming to an office. And I've always been quite traditional, wanting to get people in, working in the same office, that kind of thing. So we can recruit without that historical, geographical limitation that we've put on and look to try and onboard people, based on giving them an opportunity and a break in the industry for a Mm. paid-for, agreed sort of length of time. Yeah. And it is really, really tricky because I've got a small business, there's 10 of us, we're not going to change a whole industry. But as a business owner, you can only affect what you can do and try and then talk about it and lead by example, I guess.
1: Mm. See, that is so important. And I think the process you've done... Um, by going through a b corp and not even not even just that because many companies could, can go through a b corp process successfully and still not actually change anything it's the unlearning part it's the assessing well am i actually part of the problem part because it's not it's not just this isn't everybody issue it really it really is it's not just for white people to say oh okay am i the problem? everybody is harboring something these are we are like there's 7 billion people on the planet we are one out of 7 billion plus, and there is, or in a, in a business, a small business, 10, 15, 20 out of 7 billion plus, there are global systems at play that have been around for literal millennia that are causing this. It's like, it's, it's no, it's no joke. It's, it's really, it's, it's not something that, cause a lot of people um, in many industries, not just creative or not just marketing, um, not just digital um, many industries are sitting around um, at panels or sitting on zoom calls going oh what can we do to fix diversity and inclusion oh well i think we need to start solutionizing and i think we've had enough chat and they they all say stuff like that and it makes them feel good but there's no actual tangible work and unfortunately these systems are not playing around the same way we're playing around these systems are going very and i'm saying systems that i'm not i'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything there's more than enough facts out there academia literature to read like if if i if i actually explain what's going on we have um a capitalism that is inherently causing class divide we have um white supremacy that is going on or if you want to call it racism to pacify it a little bit i mean but the the general overarching thing is white supremacy and racism as a function of that um, we have homophobia, we have um, misogyny, patriarchy, we have so many different things that are at play here and we've all been born into this world with these systems. So, of course, by dint of us merely being here breathing, we're going to be a part of the problem. Everybody, whether you're Black or White or Asian or whatever, like the the only reason why me as a Black person can now probably easily, I don't know, Um, (laughs) see the um things it's just because i've had to experience this as a black person or as someone who's not like had a lot of money growing up Um, and even then i say that loosely because i'm still like even by even by the way I, i speak i don't really know what my accent's doing right now but Like I went to a grammar school in Kent. I'm not exactly like working class of the most working class. I even I can't I can't call myself working class. I'll be intellectually dishonest. My parents own a house. That's not traditionally working class in the UK. That's not how class works here. But economically, sure, I probably could, based on assets, based on generational wealth, all that stuff, call us working class. But really, also not really. Like we did a lot of middle class things too. And my class privilege is absolutely there. There is a like social status that I sit in professionally. That doesn't let me um, mingle with people who actually create the culture that I then go and ship off to brands. So if I don't actively go out of my way to connect with the black people on estates or the black people who actually can't get out of these situations that are, but who are, regardless of that, creating culture, who are really informing the stuff that we go out and put on ads or the stuff that we go out and put in people's faces via Google, via um, TV, different things like that. If, if, I can't, if I can't involve them in that process, then I'm as much of a problem as the white guy, middle-class guy in his big agency who doesn't hire black people. The whole point is we're all supposed to be unlearning this stuff.
0: I read something the other day with 7 billion people on the planet. It's unlikely that you as one person, and I say you as in me or you or anyone, has everything right and so we're absolutely. all therefore fundamentally at some point wrong, and I think that there needs to be a um, the ability for people to look at their position in life and on thing and their world view on things, and to mm. do so in a way that is non-defensive and is a little bit open-minded, I think mm. is a positive thing, but you can only do what you can do as one person.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and it's it's humbling to know that we can only do what we can do as one person, because oftentimes we either have the complex of we don't accept within ourselves that we can be wrong, as you've outlined, and accepting that we don't know everything. We don't, In fact, accepting that we don't know anything is probably the best place to start from with stuff like this. Because then you're teachable. Absolutely, because then you're teachable. And there are some, somebody is always going to teach somebody, we teach people in the same way people teach us. So we have to start off a place of from a place of not knowing anything, and then just telling people based off our experiences or based off things that we observe, and based off things that have been widely observed, i.e. studies, i.e. data, i.e. like qualitative analysis, things like that. And that's how we lead off. And then also by doing what's right. And we know that people suffering people being put in positions where they're not able to like, you know, live a decent life, things like just being impoverished from childhood, being discriminated against in the workplace racially, um, all these things that affect people negatively. We know what's what's right. So it's about that part leading with the good intentions and leading with the, okay, how can I be a part of the solution? And then also not trying to be, well, I'm going to save everybody. Because that doesn't work like that, the whole savior <laughs> complex every, a lot of people have that when they first start getting involved in sort of um social causes, purposeful causes, things like that. they have the whole oh well, I can be the change i want to I want to lead an army we don't need leaders we actually don't it's okay we don't need leaders, we need everybody to play their part, and that's about it it's like it's actually fine
0: absolutely and I, I think that's the that's where I've got to with it all because if I can you know. Pro- try and fairly provide opportunity to people regardless of who they are there's an opportunity is then based on if they then have an opportunity it's then to a certain degree if they get a lot of support and encouragement and uh, nurturing it's up to them to make of that opportunity what they can do Mm. and a lot of that is based on attitude and attitude can be learned and coached and encouraged so yes so you started your agency in 2020
1: <laughs> i was <happy. laughs> great year to have started man <laughs> <laughs> i thought that in january 2020 i was literally like new decade yeah let's go new agency yeah let's go i was raring to go we had the we this was honestly this was like the first time ever internally for clients we're always on time but like internally this was the first time ever that we'd got our act together and actually like relaunch to the timeline that we set for ourselves. Usually yeah. we give ourselves like a bunch of leeway, but this time we were on it. So we clearly wanted this. And we came in like January 20, 6th of January 2020 is when we launched. And I, and it was literally on the top of the year. So I was like, yeah, yeah, let's go, yeah, agency. And this was around the time when there were already murmurs of coronavirus. And Absolutely. I was like, yeah. And none of us, well, I, a few, well, a few people, but I will say there are people who, were, who will, and rightly so can say, I told you so. And the scientists in China are those people. They can, they can say, I told you so, because they, they did really release the genome early and I'll give them that credit. And also some people here as well who were like, guys, 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 pandemic, guys, we've been warning you. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but I wasn't one of those people. I was like, oh yeah, 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 whatever. Until March. Yeah. Then March, I started to fix up. And then I was like, um, and also February, March, I, I was seeing like how government were handling it. And I, and then because of where I am politically, I was like, oh, OK, so if these guys are doing that, then I need to be doing the opposite. And then I started to think, OK, so um, and I was living in Madrid at the time. So it was a whole thing, right, running an agency in the UK, living in Madrid. And there's a whole pandemic going on. So, yeah, long story short, it came to March. We were locked down. I said, oh, um, if this doesn't end soon, then our entire live events merch thing, what's going to happen to that? And we kind of said, oh, don't worry, we'll be back for summer. Summer came, summer went. <laughs> it didn't come back. <laughs> it was the scariest moment ever because all of our work to that point had been merch-based yeah. or, like, design-based or working with an event or something like that, literally all of it. So, or artist-based or so, something that required a live event to really mm-hmm. make the bulk of their income. And uh, and we're, we're basically... An ex- that sounds really bad but like an accessory agency like a, a niche bolt on sort of service that's that's what we were basically with merch and there was so much money to be made in 2019 and in the first 3 months of 2020 but then absolutely yeah it was it was really interesting so what ended up happening was a natural process of the rent was someone someone says like oh you work really really hard and really really smart when the rent is due um and (laughs) the rent was really due like it was really due in multiple places so we kind of just got our act together and started um doing the design and digital part of the merch design and digital and we just forgot about merch for that period we just said okay putting you to the side we'd love to do merch again but can't so putting you to the side and then we focused on our design offerings and our digital offerings and it was really interesting because we're like social media content creation agency, but then we started actually posting it for people. And I was like, oh, this is, this is not new, but this is newish. Yeah. Um, and then it was all going well. And then we started to onboard some like client clients. And that's where Mental Health Foundation came about. University of the Arts London came about. We um, were able to do the branding for the Queer Student Awards. And then that's where we started to become... The real meaning of impactful moments in culture we started to actually make impact not just cool campaigns that made impact for brands or for um a light touch culture thing but we started to make actual social purpose impact we started to actually work on widening participation things we started to actually work with um i mean we were always working with marginalized groups our core focus is like black culture but we were starting to properly like be a part of the solution and that was really great. I was just like, okay, so we're in this position now. It might not pay as much as Merch did. It might be a bit difficult to meander because you're always sort of on the pulse of what's going on. And you've yeah. got to like constantly be on that, especially when you're working with organizations like that. But it was it's honestly been the best like past six months of the whole time in Octap.
0: And I get the feeling in in uh, economically, there's two sort of periods where the um, tides coming in and the boats all rise up, and then when the tide goes out, and it's very often mm. in the toughest of times that you learn the most, yes. and it then places certain demands about your commercial ingenuity to actually try and come up with some sort of yeah. bank plan. Because we saw that across, you know, loads of partner agencies, other agency owners we know, clients, freelancers. You have to start really start thinking on your feet to be able to then pivot to make sure that you at the bare minimum survive. And then when individual parts of the economy come back, which is the oddest thing, you know, at some point events will come back. If you think about Mm. the pent up demand, when people have confidence that they go to events and go to events safely, then that whole merch area of your business will just flourish and come back with like never before, because there is, there's, there's a hunger, there's a thirst for you know getting out into the world again, because we've been deprived of that for a period of time.
1: Absolutely. And I'm, I'm not even hoping for that. I'm well, yes, of course I'm hoping for that, but even more, it's, I'm already seeing it happening and, and it's, and I'm grateful that we're in this position and we didn't, um, we didn't just like sort of fold and, and take the, Take the hit almost as like a reflection on us because yeah. I know it's 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 really it's it's really hard for business owners because like your business is your baby, and you're lit- you're literally running this show and you've you it's every, it, like we all feel like it's us against the world like we're doing this like for like our, our purpose passion our like drive determination is all in there and then when a a, a global thing like coronavirus happens it hits and and it's like we can absorb this and like it really t- goes to heart or we can absorb reflect pivot and then go and I'm so glad we did the latter because otherwise we would have just been on the floor like Absolutely. crying. And
0: I think there's so many people regardless whether agents or not over the pandemic have had that sort of emotional roller coaster yeah um, just in terms of circumstances so in terms of the podcast uh Josh what we're looking at doing is to try and get some useful guides and hints and tips for clients when they're looking to select an agency as a partner. And so what advice would you give uh, to clients about asking
1: for pitches? Pitches is always an interesting one, isn't it? Because you're always like in that quandary of how much spec work do I do? And how much spec work is the client asking for? And it's funny, me and my creative director were just talking today. And we literally said abolish speculative work because it's, <laughs> it's just not it's just not like worth it unless you're paying for it because at the end of the day, if someone is pitching for you, for you for a service for you that you get to sit through, reflect, and then select, they're working for you even though you haven't selected them to run through the whole project. They've still done some strategy, yeah. they've still done some thinking, they've still gone and um, used their. Many, many years of experience that they've toiled for to get you to a place where you're in the position as a client to be like, yep, like that, don't like that, yep, like that, don't like that, and let's move forward. They can't just do that for free. That's not how life works. If we're, if we're sort of, I know I'm sounding like really like kind of facetious and sarcastic, but I'm saying it because clients also come to us facetiously and sarcastically with these requests being like, oh, um, can you do this, this, and this, this, and this for free? And then maybe we can think about onboarding you on a small budget. And I'm like, excuse me? No, no, no. That's not how this works.
0: And I think we have it where um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a quite a common sort of movement from that guy. Is it Blair ends? about the no pitch agenda, um, where you just literally, where you just don't pitch. And I think there is a, there's an approach to when clients ask for pitches, if they're asking for work free of charge, is I would just, you know, I would just say no, because who goes into business to do work free of charge? I think it's fair enough, we've got like um, some um, like charity clients that we do work for, but I think commercial work, I think that's just a, That's the antithesis of what you should be doing. And so I think at that stage for a pitch to get a paid-for pitch opportunity, I think that's okay. So if a client is prepared Mm. to place some monetary value on your time and experience and expertise and learnings and um, so you bring that to bear, I think that's a a fair enough approach.
1: I I completely agree with that. Um, Paying for pitches is no problem. And we're, I mean, it's not like we don't like the literal process of pitching. It's actually fun. It's fun to like be able to do the research behind the thing if it's a big project or just to be able to like strategize and to come up with a bit of like ideas and then to go to a client and say, hey, here's what we think would be best for you. And if they say no, they say no, if they say yes, they say yes. But the whole point is there's been a respect for the work, right? Mm-hmm. With, um, with free pitching, you there is there just isn't that respect for the work because they can also then go on and take the same ideas with the cheaper agency. And that's what usually ends up happening anyway.
0: And that they, and they sometimes can do, and there's various things that you can do where um, we're part of a network of agencies called the Alliance of Independent Agencies, and they have a pitch protection thing. So you can then, if you're a creative agency, so we're not creative, and so if you're a creative agency, you can um, get that then registered um, like, not, so, and then you're covered so that if the client then takes that work and just does it anyway, you've got that like, protection.
1: I do not know that. That's amazing.
0: And especially for guys like you in the creative industries where you're actually putting your heart and soul and like breathing something into existence. I think it's um I think that kind of stuff is important. Because you can never unless you get unless you get a really warm referral or from a client that you trust, and out of network contact that's asking for free work, it's just sort of like,
1: you know. Yeah. Absolutely. And this is this is again part of the thing with it. It's it's again that whole thing of clients tell themselves that they're picking the best agency for the job. But if we're all going to warm contacts and if all of our leads are coming from warm, warm contacts, I've had a few random cold leads that have turned into amazing things that haven't actually asked me to pitch because they've seen our work. They've seen our case studies and they're like, yeah, we'll go with you. We, Absolutely. Benedictus.
0: So they have warmed themselves up because they really yes. are interested in the actual work you're putting out there and the projects you're doing.
1: Yes, 100%. And I, I respect that 100% like i respect that so much but if we didn't go through that process where it was like oh okay um i'm um a cold contact just found out who you are can you like um, we have this brief for you will you accept it will you pitch then there's got to be some understanding somewhere of some kind of payment otherwise it just looks like we're doing a lot of work for free because then you sit on a, because it's, it's not only the pitch, right? You have the intro call with the potential lead. You, you yeah. sort of pick their brain about their problems and try and solutionize on that call. That's free consultation. Then you start um, receiving the brief for the pitch. Sometimes you even write the brief and sometimes people write briefs for free. Small work. Then yeah, yeah, yeah. you actually get round to the pitch and you're doing all of this work. Some people are doing like, 100 200 page decks of research and strategy and creative executions calling up people here and there trying to find out like oh okay what's what's this um like how does this creative look to you how does this creative look to you (laughs) that's costing thousands of pounds and all for this thing that you might not win or even if you do win it they might cancel on you because they could always do that i've seen that happen at an agency before and i was literally like wow I was honestly like wow you scaled for this you did all of this stuff for this and all of a sudden it's just gone just like that and I was and I was dumbfounded
0: yeah you never know so when you're getting um an intro for a client and they're talking about a project how important is it for a client to give you a budget
1: um you know what before I would have actually said it's really important um because budgets help us like plan and we can like put together um, like okay this looks like this this looks like that this is what we can do for 10k this is what we can do for 30k yeah but now to be honest with you i don't mind if clients don't come to me with budgets anymore like of course i would i would still prefer a budget because it's just really easy but i honestly don't mind i'm because we we have our i think budgets were necessary for me when Arctype was almost a group of freelancers and that's how it felt as an agency we didn't we felt like a scrappy studio or a scrappy style yeah, yeah, yeah. now I still I'm not going I still do have my imposter syndrome I'm still like whoa like even being on this podcast talking as an agency founder it's mad to me completely mad that I'm giving tips and tricks to clap so
0: I'm 46 right and um <laughs> I still feel like an imposter I found that I'm gonna get found out and I'm sort of like <laughs> I'm nearer to retirement than starting and it still goes on so um what do you know
1: literally that it's uh, it's a healthy it's kind of a healthy feeling because it's always humbling right i guess um and yeah but budgets, i it was definitely a thing when my imposter syndrome was like a lot more knocking at my door um but now that i've sort of settled into this i don't mind not having a budget from a client because i know we have our rates and we have our costing so if you can afford it great if you can't let's go back it's fine
0: and what we try and do is um when we speak to clients is we talk in the qualification process is we try and find out what their range is. Mm. And so if they haven't got a budget in mind, we need to know, are you, have you got 2000 pounds a month, 10,000 pounds a month or 20,000 pounds a month? Because yeah. if they're a 2000 pounds a month client and we pitch 10,000 pounds, there's a disconnect instantly. And so mm-hmm. you need to find where they're sort of, we find it's to find where their threshold is. If, it's, if they haven't got the appetite or the confidence to spend one figure, then we need to dial them down to
1: another. Mm. And the confidence is really it, isn't it? Um, like confidence, in, and it's it's completely understandable from client side. I'm not just I'm not just saying half the stuff to just like <laughs> be mean to clients. No, a hundred percent, I understand. Like the hi- hierarchy in house is mad the lack of freedom in-house is mad the amount of budget restraints can be mad especially like when you're working with a either a a government body or in a charity or in a in an organization that just has a lot of blue i said blue tape wow what red tape rather Um, and um that whole bit when when you're in that um environment it's really really hard to have confidence in spending any money because it's almost like wow i have all this budget to manage but I don't know where to put it. I need results. I need results now. And especially given the current climate we're in pandemic money's shortening budgets have been cut, especially marketing budgets are always the first to get cut. Fair enough. I get it. But at the same time, when you're honest as a client, we can be honest as an agency yeah. and that's the best thing, honesty in communication. So for a client, what are the signs that an agency is a good fit? This is an interesting question because I feel like first and foremost, you need that assurance that your day-to-day contact or the person that you're liaising with in biz or just whoever you're talking to is like a nice person. Yeah. Some people are all about like, okay yeah 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 we can do this for you we can do that for you we can do all of this stuff and then once you're on there within the first two weeks they're already trying to upsell you and upsell you and upsell you and upsell you you. or more more services no no waiting everything sell 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 sales or you have some agencies where it's like selling everything and then the accounts team is like blood of jesus how am i supposed to do any of this (laughs) um or you have certain agencies that are more laid back in their approach to account management and things, and you you're a client that needs constant updates, or vice versa, you have an agency who's constantly providing updates. You're like, whoa, 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 my inbox is too full for this. I don't have time. Yeah. Um, it really is about, I'd say, um building, attempting to build that rapport with an agency first, and the same way with agencies attempting to build a rapport with a client first, yeah. and then seeing where things lead to, because it's no, I mean, of course, we're all trying to get in um, revenue and we're trying to get revenue quick because we need it for our overheads and for our bottom lines absolutely and the clients of course are trying to spend quickly because they have deadlines to meet targets to reach kpis to um, achieve absolutely but that rapport is so important because you could pick the best agency in the world but if you don't like your day-to-day contact you are going to be stressed and that agency as a result will be stressed you can um, pick the best creative in the world but if their communication skills or account management skills are poor then what does a creative matter when you're going on 16 rounds of feedback because one line in the brief wasn't right mm-hmm. so it really is about cementing that rapport that that just communication that level of honesty first in um, an agency and then how, how to find that well I mean I guess for me I love a small agency. I love a medium sized agency, a big agent. I'm not really a big agency person. I I will say I've, I've worked with big agencies before. I'm not really a big agency person. I like a small to medium sized agency. I like a team where I can say walk into an office with them on a meeting, or I can join a zoom call and, um, I recognize faces. I like, a an agency that's not faceless. That's not Mm -hmm. like a subsidiary of this huge conglomerate or something. Um, for me, and I'm I'm saying this as like say client side on joined up thinking or um because yeah. we joined up thinking is not an agency. We work we actually work with agencies as well. Um and we've worked with some great big agencies, but I also like the small ones. I really do. I just yeah, I I like this I like the small ones because they often have this drive and determination and just the this some levels of creativity that are like unmatched by big agencies. Bigger agencies understand like um how to scale back things and how to be like sort of small C conservative with things. Um, But small agencies, they're, they're always out for the, out, out for the, um, for the win. And I just, I love that personally. Clients. I mean, if you're a big client, it's going to be really, really hard for you to take a bet on a small agency because they're small, (laughs) but I'd recommend it.
0: And that's the thing. And that's when no one ever got fired for appointing a top 10 network agency because it's a risk-free decision. If you're a Mm. marketing director and you appoint a a smaller independent there is some you need to have real confidence that that independent is going to deliver on the brief so that your position is is solid mm. you can't afford that you can't you cannot afford for that to go wrong
1: absolutely and that position is like um it's it's really well i mean i'll just be quick it's it's really really hard um with that position because everybody wants to make sure that their role is secure within their company but at the same time i challenge senior leaders in in uh, on client side to really understand that it is not a risk-free decision going with a top 10 agency because your creative, I'm speaking for the creative industries now, your creative is the same stale creative that I've been seeing for the past 10 years on ITV ads. I am tired. I don't need to see that no more. Like sometimes go with a more innovative option and it may be safe and you may be getting exactly the same returns year on year, but you can do better. You know, you can do better.
0: Excellent. So when the
1: clients look at an agency, how important is that agency's values? Oh, wow. I would like to think it's utmost importance. I would like, I would honestly like to think it's of the utmost importance. Um, I know to me it is when I'm looking to work with agencies. To me, it's when I'm looking to work with the clients, it's of the utmost importance, Um, like their values. but. What I'm noticing now is a lot of people are scrambling to get values and people don't actually have them to begin with. So it's almost like that we're working backwards and trying to think, OK, well, what values do I need for this campaign or for this thing to, or for me to basically not be cancelled um, on, online if someone sees that something was wrong with the campaign? What values do I need to just mitigate that risk when really it should be sit down for a bit longer and just think what values do you want to stand for? Just pick one or two. And just make sure that in everything that you're you're just hitting those values. If if an agency doesn't match that, that's OK. You can not everyone is a right fit, but it, I think it should be of the utmost importance because there's that infamous saying. I don't know who actually coined it, but you either stand for something or you fall for everything.
0: Yeah. I always think of values as being when I used So I've never been creative. So I've taken fantastic creative work that other people have done and got that in like Breaker Coronation Street or in the early white hand page of a national newspaper. And there is a approach to media planning buying where it's um, there's an Italian phrase called I think it's called Combrio. I, I don't know why I'm trying to quote Italian phrases, I'm from Essex, but um and it's with life. And so what you try and do, so if a brand is fun and energetic, what you try and do is then make sure that the environment you're in is fun and energetic yeah. as well. And so that there is a synergy between the creative and then the you know, television or editorial environment so that there is a real sort of synergy. And mm. I think values are a very, very similar thing. So if you're a brand that stands for these sort of values, then to work with agencies that demonstrate those values and make sure there is, um there's a good footprint then for you to then base the other sort of areas of the conversation we've discussed. Mm. And for an agency in, in terms of um like industry accreditations, how impo- how important are they for a client? Do you think?
1: these are interesting. As a small agency, I'm definitely looking to get some industry accreditations. Some, well, some more um, outside of just like individual awards and things. I don't see awards as accreditation as much, although they do kind of double as both um, yeah. accreditation. Cause like that's something you like work for and like you really go and get and things like B Corp. I think that is like just soon. I honestly think like in the next five, 10 years, it's going to be a requirement as an agency to just have that, um, and I hope like things like that will be requirements because they're, they're brilliant, but then also accreditation in like the actual services you provide. So um, Chartered Institute of Marketing staff or yep. um, PR staff or like um, there's so many others.
0: Absolutely. So we've got them for like Google ads and you can get big ads. Yeah. I think accreditations display a certain approach that you're taking to business. And so with the whole B Corp thing, what we're, the process that we've been through is I've just found ourselves woefully lacking, doing, not doing stuff we should have probably been doing. And so in terms of our application, we've now got that stuff up to a basic standard that demonstrates mm-hmm. that we're placing equal importance on making profit because we're a profit-making business. And that's what we're going to do and make as much profit as possible. Thank you very much. Um, but then also <laughs> um, make sure we're not doing that at the detriment of our clients, staff society trying to make society a fairer place and then the environment as well Mm. all those external stakeholders are treated equitably yeah so in terms of um agencies what ones do you really admire in your space
1: oh well i mean the elephant room i mentioned them uh already i love Mm -hmm. i love that agency they're a creative agency and the whole thing yeah they're called elephant room because of the elephant in the room and their thing is diversity and inclusion and they're not just you bog-standard diversity and inclusion agency, because I think there's a few of those about, but these guys are really about it. I remember they did a campaign with Uber, Mm -hmm. um, and this is what really did it for me, because I'd already known them, by this point, I'd actually worked in the agency um, as a contractor, so it's not like I'd, um, it's not like I had to warm up to them, but this really solidified it for me. There was a campaign they did with Uber, and they got somebody to be in this campaign, I think it was for, LGBT History Month or Pride Month, either of the two. I can't remember exactly which one, but um, they were doing this campaign and all of a sudden I hear this contrary-to-Uber sound point in an Uber ad, and I'm like, eh, what? So this guy, this uh, well, this uh, um, person, I can't, I, can't, I can't remember who they were, but they were brilliant, brilliant, brilliant um, in the ad. And they were, like, going at companies like Uber for like lack of integrity like lack of um support and this this kind of thing I, i'll if i can find it i'll actually send it to you um sure. but that told that taught me that okay uber would not have gone for this just innately they would not have so the elephant room really made an effort to keep that in there and to find people who are going to challenge the status quo and to pay them for their time for doing so and that one was really like okay these guys are here to stay these guys have really done it they've they've thrown it out of the park like that one was for me like that was really admirable another agency um on road sort of a similar thing. they're a research agency um and they're responsible for Nike's presence in London. I will actually say that they are like one of the single hands that are responsible for why Nike is so lauded in this city um just beyond the shoes and the clothes and uh-huh. and the lifestyle they've really managed to tap into what London was doing creatively like then the nothing beats of London the campaign they did the entire research for that and it was so good it was just so good um another agency I admire I must say Hype Collective and Hard Numbers those guys literally just taught me how to agency so yeah they're they're up there excellent
0: so 2020 has seen a lot of change Josh and it's forced a lot of the world to rethink about things what ways do you think the agency environment has changed? And what do you think agencies can do to stay relevant and incorporate sort of larger
1: sort of learnings out there in society? Mm. I think this one, this one is really interesting because, yeah, 20, as, as we discussed before, 2020 is a mad year. It was a mad year and 2021 is looking the same, like <laughs> the same kind of madness. I think <laughs> history is just spinning off in a mad sort of trajectory. Honestly, there must be a simulation out there where we're actually like enjoying life on a beach somewhere, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah, um, I think agency world has changed so much, but also it's really clinging on to the stuff of old um, that isn't necessarily beneficial, and um, it's almost like two halves. You've got the small, nimble agencies like ours that are like really trying to push the boat out and like be better and, and do more things like for example you've said yourself you love an office you love getting people in the office but you're having to do more remote working and you're like allowing your business to do that so that you can widen your talent pool and Actually, I think that is absolutely great
0: I can just look back and think I was wrong because I've just been very traditional I have probably been conservative with a small c unintentionally just based on that's what I'd always done mm. and I always took a very dim view of people that wanted to work from home so I was just like what's Jeremy Carl and sit around in your pyjamas and there probably is <laughs> an inherent lack of trust in terms of what I had with the staff and there was no reason for that it was just based on some irrational notion and the guys um, and I say that um, um, neutrally because I employ women as well um, mm-hmm. and the team I should say they have just done exceptionally well in a really really tough year they've stood up been counted
1: and contributed to us sort of pushing on honestly like we, we always surprise ourselves as business owners when like our team actually like is we it's funny we hire our team we're like yes i believe in you and then we, we're we shocked when they deliver <laughs> almost we shock we're actually shocked when they're like deliver well and and outside of our expectations it's, it's kind of it's, it's a hilarious thing but absolutely and that that sort of change is like in the really right direction because uh-huh. it's it's gonna it like the world is moving to a more it was moving towards a more remote more virtual more flexible place anyway but the pandemic has definitely sped that up and um yeah agents agency world has changed in that regard i know a few people have just like left their offices by the wayside yeah. and saved save that overhead money um or are just having like co-working spaces or just paying less on rent by sharing with someone else or some 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 things like that um and things like that i think that all comes down to like, again, um, as as like we discussed right early on when I was talking about introduction into the agency life and general agency culture and hustle ball and that kind of stuff. All of this like change that's happening is coming down to centering the person first, whether it be the business owner, the agency founder, the senior leader, or the junior intern, the apprentice, the the junior account staff, the um. Uh, like the mid-level staff whether whoever is centering the person first and ensuring that they're in an optimal condition to deliver the work to be able to like because they everyone wants to work well everybody wants to work well so um centering like that personal like just growth and uh, like centerness and wholeness so that they can now go and deliver
0: Absolutely. And I think when I first started working in uh, the early 90s, there was a recession at the time. And so you just took whatever job you could take Mm. and you just worked hard and that was it. And the the stuff that we talk about in terms of, you know, trying to create pathways for people, trying to create wellness for staff, looking after staff, Mm. um, training staff and those kind of things. I think they probably were done. But it was very much, you just kept your head down and you worked and you made sure that you were a productive economic unit and um, anything <laughs> above that, you didn't you just sort of went to the pub and drunken, and, I don't know. It's, um, you know, things have changed phenomenally mm. um, in the, inter, the intervening later years. So Josh, this has been great. Where can people find out more about you online?
1: Ooh, oh, yeah, thank, thanks so much. This has, been, this has been a really, really lovely conversation. I've enjoyed <laughs> yeah. every i've literally enjoyed every minute of it and yeah on online so i am very atypical for an agency founder i'm not on twitter actually anymore um remove that one for over the pan too much news too much opinions i was just like no nope, the scroll I of doom got too much oh too much for me so now all i do is live vicariously through my business Twitter, and it's a bit more of a safe space for me <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah um, my personal social media on Instagram I am at Jalakapo so that's J-A-L-E K-A-P-O and um, archetype that's A-R-C-H T-Y-P-E U-K that's our thing everything lowercase and that's on Twitter and Instagram for archetype and yeah I mean you'll find all the links to everything that I do on my Instagram page anyway so but yeah that's that's this that's that's me
0: excellent perfect thanks for joining me today josh
1: thank you so much for having me
0: all right gang thanks for listening if you found the conversation useful please join me again next time for choosing an agency